0: One of the points that I made last uh, week that I want to really return to over and over again as we kind of bear down on the different psalms is that you're going to sort of see, if you're with us, that the psalms display incredible emotional and spiritual range in terms of what the normative or normal Christian life looks like. So you're going to find that the songwriters, the psalmists we call them, are sometimes happy, um, they're sometimes sad, they're sometimes confused, they're sometimes skeptical, they're often reaching for a hope that they know has to be beyond themselves. They are all things that you might have felt this morning when you woke up. Whatever you felt this morning, I can promise you, or as you go throughout your day, I can promise you will find in these songs. And yet the Psalms themselves encourage us to approach God exactly as we are however we are, and they assure us that we don't have to work ourselves into a certain emotional and spiritual condition in order to come to God, but that God's love, the range of God's love, is sufficient for who we are in the moment. That we can come into His presence and be with Him and get to know Him with whatever ails us, with whatever is sort of stirring around inside of us as men. I heard a story a couple of years ago, um, about a guy who was walking over a bridge. And as he's walking over the bridge, he sees another man on the bridge, and the other man is really sad, and so he looks at the man and says, you know, what's wrong? And the, the sad man replies, well, nobody loves me. And the man that saw him went to him and said, well, you know, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And the man said, oh, yes, absolutely. The other man said, well, you're a Christian. And the sad man said, yes. The other man said, well, so am I. Uh, The other man again said, are you Protestant or Catholic? And the sad man said, I'm Protestant. And the man said, so am I. Then he asked what denomination? The sad man said Baptist. And he said, me too. He said, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? And the sad man said, I'm a Northern Baptist. And the other man said, me too. He said, Northern conservative Baptist or Northern liberal Baptist? And the sad man said, well, I'm a Northern conservative Baptist. The man said, wow, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? And the man said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. And the other man, the sad man, the assuming the happy man, said, Me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Lakes Region Council of 1879, or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region, Council of 1912. Sad man replied, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region, Council of 1912. The other man said, die, heretic, and he pushed him over the bridge. (laughs) I hope that doesn't offend all the Northern Baptists in the room this morning. What's the point? Is it true that God can only love us, that the love of God is only if we are a part of a specific theological tribe? The story says, well, of course not. The love of God is wider than even our denominational differences. You can apply the exact same thing to sort of our experience of the Christian life. Is it, is it true that God can only love us or is only interested in us if we're of a certain kind of experience in the moment, if we're of a certain spiritual frame of mind? Well, the Psalms says absolutely not. His love is way, is way wider and deeper than that. The Psalms are going to tell us and challenge us not to push the confused or the skeptical... The struggling, the sinful over the bridge, so to speak. That God's love, there is room in the grace of God for all of us who are struggling to know Him and to love Him and to worship Him as He is. The Psalms invite us, once again, to enter into God's presence as we are. At the same time, they they direct us in the daily practices of how we are called to love God back. Those are called the spiritual disciplines. And we're going to explore both of those sides that the Psalms kind of move us into this semester. Both how God invites us to come into his presence as we are and to be loved by him, but also how we're challenged to love him back in the ordinary day-to-day mundane realities of life. Psalm 2 this morning is what we're going to look at. You have it there on your table. Maybe you brought your Bible. Feel free to open your Bible now to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is what is known as a royal psalm. There are about 10, 12, depending on how you number them, a dozen royal psalms in the Bible. And you'll sort of recognize a royal psalm whenever you come to it because a royal psalm, the subject of a royal psalm is the kingship or authority of God. And how that kingship or authority gets expressed in God's ruler over Israel. Let's read Psalm 2 now and see what God has for us this morning in this particular psalm. Terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this collection of songs. Let me pray that You would give us grace and that You would descend upon us with Your, with your Spirit to illumine our hearts that we might see and know You. We pray, Father, that You would meet us where we are. Um, Oh, God, that You would help us to see Your majesty and the majesty of Your Son, Jesus, and to know what it means to live for Him, to submit ourselves to Him in the daily realities of where we find ourselves. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So three priorities this morning if you're taking notes. The first is this. I want to make a few opening remarks just about the psalm itself. And about poetry, which I know sounds pretty exciting, right? So, a few opening remarks about the psalm and specifically about how Hebrew poetry works to help you read the psalms from here. Two, we're gonna look at the psalm subject. The subject of the psalms, this particular psalm, is God's authority and our submission. So, you know, we're talking about daily disciplines, and the discipline that we're gonna approach this morning is the discipline, the practice of submitting ourselves to God. Uh, especially when it cuts against or across our own designs or desires? What does it look like to submit ourselves to God? And then finally, I want to take a look this morning at Jesus as the psalm's fulfillment. So if you were here last week, you heard me say that Jesus, um, Jesus saw his own ministry and messiahship, his own, um, his own work through the lens of these psalms. So much so that that when he went back to his disciples in Luke 24 after the resurrection, he said, look, I am the one who has come to fulfill the songs that you have. And so I want us to chase that down a little bit this morning. How does Jesus fill out or fulfill this particular psalm for us? Opening remarks about the psalm, God's authority in our submission to him, and finally Jesus' role in bringing the psalm to life for us. So a few opening remarks this morning, and let me begin by blowing your mind and saying that the Psalms are all poetry. Okay, um, you probably knew that already. All the Psalms, including this Psalm, um, is written. Uh, or, excuse me, are written as lyrics. Okay, they're poetry. Now, what does that mean? It means that, as poems, that the Psalms use licenses. They use hyperboles. They use images. They often use emotional rather than just simply logical connections to do their work. The chief characteristic of Hebrew uh, poetry is something called parallelism. And parallelism you'll find over and over again in the Psalms. You'll see it here again repeatedly. So for example, look at your handout or look at your Bible and look with me at verse 4. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. And you'll see another line right under that that says this, the Lord holds them in derision. That's parallelism. Parallelism is the practice of saying the same thing twice using different words. Happens over and over again in the Psalms. So again in verse 9, the psalmist writes, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Parallel lines layering images, really to make the same exact point. Now, why do I tell you this? Not just to make you smarter this morning or to show off with your friends. I'm sure that would be a big point of showing off. But how often, men, do you get an email or a letter of some sort that you find to be unduly repetitive, that you would consider to be too wordy, and that you refuse to finish because the email or the letter or the point of correspondence just takes too much of your time. I was talking to one of our men last week who shall go unnamed, and he was saying that he gave some advice to one of our short-term missionaries who was going overseas to serve on the field in a different country, and he said, look, I told her it was the best advice I could give her. I told her, for the men, bullet points at the top of all your letters write the paragraphs of the details for all the moms and the women, but all we want is bullet points. Just give us bullet points. All the facts, no fluff. I totally resonate with that. I mean, there's something about all of us that says, can't I just get everything of substance in bullet points? But you'll notice as you read the Bible that none of the Bible is written in bullet points. And this particular aspect of Scripture is... Um, is the exact opposite of trying to read something in the form of bullet points. You cannot approach the Psalms quickly to grab something fast or rapidly to be off on your way. The Psalms do not care how busy you are. They don't care that you've got to go somewhere and get on with your day. They don't care that you don't like poetry. The Psalms are there for you, and they demand that if you're going to read them, and you're going to grow in them, you're going to get some of their nutrients, um, then you're going to have to submit to their way or not get anything at all. In many ways, the Psalms, reading the Psalms, are a form of spiritual discipline unto itself because it demands that you slow down and listen and pay attention. And think about how many opportunities are forced upon you during your day that really make this a priority in your life. They say, look, you gotta slow down. You have to pay attention. You have to read repetitively. And you have to submit to our way or you won't get anything at all. The Psalms themselves are an exercise in spiritual discipline. It's not an information dump. (laughs) It's a spiritual formation process just sitting with them and reading them. Watch for the emotional connections. Slow down when you read, right? And, and watch for the use of many different ways of saying the same thing so that those images become lodged in your heart and your mind and you begin to get something that you would have never gotten if all the Psalms were were just bullet points. I mean, you know this anyway because you would never demand that your, your favorite songs in life were just bullet points or just read in a monotone way, right? You understand that the import and the, the, the significance of having something wash over you. If you're going to read the Psalms, like Psalm 2, you got to slow down. you got to slow down and let them have their way with you. Okay. Opening remarks, that's number one. Number two, the subject of Psalm 2. The subject of Psalm 2 is, as I said, God's authority and the discipline of the practice of submission. So what I'd like for us to do this morning is just kind of walk through the Psalm together. And I want to start where the Psalm starts, in verses 1 through 4. So put your eyes with me on verses 1 through 4. Okay, so verses 1 through 3 form a stanza, and they are a depiction, basically, of humanity and rebellion against God. Look over them for a second. What do you notice about humanity and rebellion against God? Do you notice, first of all, that there's a lot of anger in those first few verses? You notice that the world is stirred up and angry? Does that seem relevant at all to where we live today? You ever feel like we live in an angry world? <laughs> Do you notice also maybe the arrogance of the rulers who are called to steward the nations that are angry? You ever you ever see in our world today that power and arrogance often go together and that and that power blinds people to begin believing that they can live any way they want? You ever You ever run into that before? See it here in Psalm 2. But all else I think in the opening verses, you'll notice the futility and the silliness of of the scheme that the rulers are planning. Do you notice that? I mean, verse 1 says this. The psalmist says the people's plot what? What does it say? In vain. That means in foolishness. There's no end to it. And in verse four, and this is one of my favorite verses, I think, in in the Bible, God looks down from heaven, right? And he looks down at humanity's best, most powerful, most reasoned attempts at breaking away from him. And what does he do? Does he start sweating? No, he looks down and he he laughs. He is so unimpressed by our best and most powerful and most well-reasoned attempts to get away from him. I just want to pause here and make a point that I think is particularly relevant for us. It's not the subject of the psalm, but I do think it comes out later in the psalm. And the point is this, that the psalm 2, at the very beginning, gives a warning to us about conflating power and wisdom. Okay? A warning about identifying wisdom with power. I think the idea here is that it's really easy to fall into the trap of believing that power makes someone wise. That because someone has enjoyed worldly success, maybe you've accumulated resources or you have some significant title at work or uh, standing in the community, that because you have power, that people should listen to you. That you deserve a platform that, man, if people would just bask in your aura, if they would just touch the hem of your garment... (laughs) then they too would be successful like you were, right? Power, there's a temptation to conflate the two. And what Psalm 2 is saying, even initially, is that we are to be careful. The kings in the psalm, the rulers in the psalm, the powerful people in the psalm are doing the stupidest thing in the psalm. They are acting like fools and leading other people into their insanity, so be careful, In fact, you might want to say it like this. The psalm doesn't go this far, but I think it's probably true in Scripture. You can assume that if you're a person in power, you need more wisdom, not less. That your need for wisdom is actually greater because power often blinds you to it and because you have more responsibility for those who are following you. Power makes you need wisdom more, not less. So where does it come from? Well, the psalmist uh, is going to say in the rest of the psalm that that real wisdom comes in submission to God. So look at verses 5 through 9 with me. I just want you to take note, this stanza is about God's authority. So how does God engage the human rebellion? What's his response? Well, the psalmist says that he appoints a king to rule from Zion. You may not know this, but if you're ever reading the Bible and you see the word Zion, it just is another moniker for Jerusalem, which was the capital of Israel, the seat of the temple in the seat of God's holy enthroned one, so it was a very significant place. And the extent of this particular king's uh, kingdom is he has been given the task of ruling not just over Israel, but he is to subdue the nations. Now look at that with me. What is he supposed to do? It says that he is to rule over them by what? By breaking them? You see that? And dashing them to pieces like potter's clay. In other words, the particular task of this king is to go into all the world and to ensure that the entirety of creation lives as it's supposed to live, and that is in submission to God. This king will have authority over heaven and earth to bring all of creation into submission to God. And the psalmist is telling us this morning that if we're going to be men who are wise if we're going to chase wisdom, if we're going to inculcate wisdom in our own lives, then we need to look up and we need to see the supremacy of God as expressed in His Holy King. I'm gonna say that again. We need to spend time looking up and meditating on, noticing, acknowledging the supremacy of God as expressed in His Holy King. I could just ask you this morning, because the Psalm's going to sort of get at it, how often do you spend time looking up, acknowledging the supremacy of God? How often do you spend time looking up and contemplating the authority of God, not only over your own life, but over the world itself? The psalmist, says, the psalmist introduces the stanza before he says you've got to submit to God, Because the first task of submitting to him is actually looking up and acknowledging the power that he possesses. C.S. Lewis has this sort of famous quote in, in Mere Christianity. He says that the reason the proud man cannot know God is that he spends all of his time looking down upon others. Or he spends all of his time looking around himself, finding someone new to compare himself to, and to outdo. He has no time to look up. The proud man has no time to look up, and thus he never sees someone who might be over him, who is immeasurably greater than him. How much time do you spend looking up and seeing someone, contemplating the one, who is immeasurably greater than you? That's what Psalm 2 calls you to do first. What happens as a result? Well, verse 10 says that if we're wise, says, look, nations be wise, you see that? Be warned if we heed the wisdom and the warning. Then the psalmist says that we will serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now, I want you to notice, that's parallelism again, but notice the dual images here. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. How often in your life can you say that at the same time, you had deep joy and deep trembling at the very same time. That's what it, that's what it feels like to submit to God. You say, Chad, what, I, I don't know that I've ever had that. Well, I'll tell you what time I had it. I felt that way when I became a father. Um, when my first son was born, I was overwhelmed with the joy of, of having a child. I mean, I was, you know, I was grateful, I was thankful, I was ecstatic. At the same time, I trembled at the responsibility and the reality that I was given a task and care to rate. I, I really, I could not get my car up to the speed limit on the way home from the hospital because I could not believe that the doctors released him into my care. <laughs> like, I thought that should be illegal. Like, I, shouldn't I have to pass a test first? Like, I don't know what to do, you know? The, the, the idea of both having deep joy and deep trembling is the reality that you sense that when you start serving God and live in submission to Him, that joy comes from the sense that, you know what, this is what I was made to do. I was made to do this. I was made to live before Him. I was made to serve Him. This is, this is an unbelievably great privilege. And at the same time, you sense the responsibility and the calling, the weight of it, to serve in the King's the king's uh, service, to be with him as one of his agents. Submission to God is joy and it's trembling at the same time. The sense of being so dignified that you have a place at the king's table, but so joyful that he would count you worthy to serve with him. Joy and trembling in our submission to him. Now brass tacks, what does submission look like? Well, look with me at verse 12. It's a very strange, in fact, we're not really sure what it means. <laughs> this is our best shot. It says, Kiss the sun. The Hebrew is not really clear at this point, right? So, kiss the sun is like our best 2,000 year effort to translate what's going on here. It does sort of make sense because kissing the sun was a public way to show homage to a ruler, right? So, if you're going to submit to the sun's authority, you would go to him and you would have this public act that showed in front of witnesses. That you were laying down your arms and you were placing your life under the authority of the king. It was a show of public homage, public loyalty. So, two thoughts here. One is this there is a moment in life when submitting to God needs to be a public reality for you. A moment in life when submission to God becomes a public reality. When you lay down your arms, And you effectively say, Lord, not my will but yours be done. I want public accountability for my commitment to live for and serve you. Now, if you're involved in the Christian church, you know that that happens in baptism and when we take vows together. That is is the manifestation of kissing the son. Public homage, public loyalty, public accountability to live in submission to him. But there is also the reality that anytime this happened in the past, there was a struggle to live out that public commitment in the small, daily, private moments of a citizen's life. There is the, there is the private struggle. There is the private struggle to wake up every day and to actually live out your public commitment to pay homage to the king. And that's a discipline of submission. The discipline of submission is to wake up every morning and to say, oh Lord, my life is not my own. The day that unfolds before me that I don't know what's going to happen yet, that day is not my own. You've numbered it. It's your day. Do with me and do with this day as you will and help me as I follow you this day. Help me to be obedient no matter what it costs me. Help me to live in obedience and in homage to you no matter the cost. In your handout this morning, if you'll turn to the back, you'll notice, this is the first time we've ever done this, there's like a challenge this week, <laughs> and the challenge kind of resonates with what I just said, that, that it's just a, and it's bullet points, man, like I get you, I want you to know that, it's not poetry, there's bullet points on the back of your handout. The, the bullet points are different attitudes or outlooks for someone who is trying to live in submission to God as a daily reality. The, the challenge is just to get up every morning and to read these and to pray for God's help to apply them. You'll notice that one of them, for example, is trying to live out your day without having to control outcomes in your life. It doesn't mean, now It doesn't mean that you sort of like, that you're not the leader God calls you to. It just means that you're going to publicly, you're going to say to God in the morning that the outcomes that you have for me are yours. I'm going to be faithful in the daily tasks you've given me, but the outcomes... The results belong to you. Begin to say that. Begin to practice that discipline of privately paying homage to God, what has already been true probably for many of you publicly as well. Okay, last thing this morning I want to note is just I want to just show you kind of how how Jesus is in all of this. Okay? Where is Jesus um, as the psalm's fulfillment? Well, Jesus himself uh, viewed himself, excuse me, as the fulfillment of the Psalms. That is to say that Jesus saw that he was in each of them, and, and Jesus finds, you find Jesus in each of the Psalms both as your model for how to obey the Psalms and as the source of hope you get in the struggle for obedience. So two ways that we find Jesus in the Psalms. One is Jesus is here as the model for what obedience looks like, And he is also here present in the Psalms as the source of hope that you need to continue in your own struggle for obedience. So let's take both of those for a moment this morning. Number one, how is Jesus the model of submission for us? If you read the Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus repeatedly said that his his will on earth or his work on earth was to do not his own will, but the will of his Father who sent him. And you you might be saying, well, that was easy. He's like, they're like the same, (laughs) right? A little bit tougher for us. Well, the moment of real trial, though, comes in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? And it appears there that those wills don't coincide as well as we think they do, right? So Jesus is there in the Garden. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to suffer and die and be separated from God. He's about to, um, to bear the cost and the weight of wrath and sin. And he looks at God, and he prays in that moment, and he says, Lord, if, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And then what does he say? Remember what he says then? He says, but not my will, but yours be done. And that is the model for authentic submission. The model for authentic submission is the moment in your life when you know, when you know that the will of God cuts across your own designs and desires. When you can sense that what God wants for you, what he says in his word, counts as obedience to him, is not what you want. What are you going to say in that moment? Well, Jesus shows you. Father, if it be possible, maybe this, yet not my will but yours be done. Jesus is the model for us for what true submission looks like. But even more, Jesus is the source of hope that we find in the psalm for how to obey him, obey God in the long struggle of the Christian life. The first hearers and singers of the psalm in the Old Testament would have heard the reference to the Davidic king, or excuse me, the king here, and God's son as either David himself or someone in the Davidic dynasty, right? So you see the word son, and if if you've read the New Testament, you immediately assume probably that the son refers to God's authentic son that would come later. That's not true. David himself was called God's son. All of the Davidic rulers lived under the moniker of God's Son. That was a common way to refer to the king in a theocratic kingdom. But what is, what is striking in this passage is that not David, nor Solomon, nor anyone else in the line of David ever achieve any sort of universal kingdom that is described here. In other words, they're all local kings. There is no king in the Davidic line that ever asks God to make the nations his heritage never happens. Solomon gets close. He gets the whole uh, Mediterranean, eastern seaboard, right? No one gets the nations. No one gets the nations. I want you to hear what Jesus says at the end of Matthew's Gospel. It's the Great Commission. He says this to his disciples. He says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All of it. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. What is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying that I am the begotten son of Psalm 2. I am the one to whom the authority of God has been given. I am the true king. You say, well, Jesus, how do you subdue the nations then? How will you kind of break the rebellion? How will you break the pride and rebellion of the people that rise up against you? through love, through going and proclaiming the gospel and making disciples and baptizing people and teaching them. See, the gospel is a twist on Psalm 2 that you don't see coming until you get to Jesus. And then you see that the real way that God radically breaks us is by radically loving us. By loving us in a way that we don't deserve, by giving His Son to us over to death before He gives His Son to us to rule over us, God breaks us by coming to us and washing our feet and serving us in a way that melts away the false belief that if God is the one who bounds us, then we will never be free. God breaks us by loving us, and so to say that, to, to say that um, submission to God is important is also to say that submission to God is the most normal reasonable, joyful thing in the world when you are convinced that the king loves you enough to give his own life for you. There's a writer named Rod Dreher, a famous writer who's a Christian. Dreher is not a Northern Baptist. He's Greek Orthodox, so we'll let it stay. And Dreher tells a story about a struggle he had. It was in a recent interview to love his dad. To love his dad whom he felt really never loved or appreciate or understood him. So Dreher's from a small town in Louisiana and um, really felt like that, that, that wasn't a place for him. <laughs> and so he got out and, and moved to New York and felt much more at home in other places and felt like his dad never respected that, never honored that, never, never took the time to understand him. And so his priest named Father Matthew was counseling him one day and said, look, Rod, you have no choice As a Christian, you have no choice in the matter. You have got to love your dad, even if he doesn't love you back in the way that you want him to. You hear that? That is submission to God. You have no choice in the matter. You have to submit to the will of God and to love your dad, even if your dad never loves you back in the way that you want him to. When Dreher struggled to put that into practice, Father Matthew told him to recite the Jesus prayer. Maybe you've heard it before. It's a simple prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Father Matthew said, look, every time that you struggle to love your dad, recite this prayer, it turned out that Dreher was like reciting this prayer hundreds of times a day. And he said that two life-changing events happened after that. The first was when Dreher was alone at home one evening, lying in bed, and he felt a presence come into his room. This is what he said. He said, I felt a hand reach inside my heart and put a stone there. And he said, I could see in some interior way that the stone says... God loves you. God loves me. I doubted that God loved me all my life. It was the first time that I sensed that God really loved me. Second thing happened a few months later. Dreher stopped by his dad's house to organize his medications. He was serving him faithfully. His dad was on the porch reading his newspaper and drinking his coffee. And Dreher went over to him and he leaned down to kiss him on the cheek and his father grabbed him by the arm and tears streamed down his face. And he was stammering. And Dreher's dad said, I spent a long time talking to the Lord last night about you and all the transgressions I did against you. And I told the Lord I was sorry. And I think he heard me. Astonished, Dreher kissed him and said, I love you, Dad. So his dad died just a few years later in 2015. And Dreher said in the article, he said, had he not listened to his priest and struggled to submit to God's will to love his dad no matter what, he would have stayed an angry child forever. I love this story because of the pattern. Dreher had to pray for God's mercy to break him. He had to pray constantly for God's mercy to help him submit to God's instruction to love his dad no matter the cost. Then what happened? Dreher learned that God loved him. And in beginning to love his dad without any expectation of return, God broke the heart of his father as well. What I want you to see this morning is I think you really can try your hardest every day to say to God, thy will be done. But I don't think that you can say that for very long with any sort of real intensity and sincerity until you see that God's will is anchored in the love of Jesus Christ for you. Without seeing that to break your heart of stone, that Jesus himself humbled himself in all things, that he suffered, that he died, that he sunk into the depths of hell, that he was raised up as God's anointed son, that he is seated at the right hand of God even now there for you. This, I think, is the great hint of the last line. Look at how the psalm ends, right? You have all this submission language, all this strength language, all this fighting language almost, and the last line of the psalm is this. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. There is no refuge from Him, right? There is only refuge in Him. There is no refuge from His authority. There is only refuge in Him. Why resist Him when He loves you this deeply? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word to us this morning. Pray, O God, that You would give us the heart, Lord, the strength, the empowerment to submit to you in all things. I'm sure there are things on each of our minds that, that are deeply applicable this morning that we are struggling in resistance against you to submit to you for. And yet I pray, God, that you would help us to be honest about those things, to wrestle with your love for us. Um, I pray, Father, that, um, that you would give us strength to, see, to look up and to see your authority and supremacy and also uh, strength and clarity to see your love for us in Christ. We pray, God, that you would put a stone inside of each of us that that is convinced that you love us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.